like for you to open your Bibles with me this morning, first of all, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're looking at uh, various scriptures throughout the Bible today on the subject of the Bible is the Word of God. Last week we looked, looked at the biblical uh, building uh, families on the Word of God, building strong families on the Word of God, how important it is in our family life, our home life, no matter how small your family is or how large your family is, that we build our homes on the Word of God. And today we're going to be looking at a subject that is every Christian ought to know that the Bible is the Word of God. It's very essential that we know for sure that this is God's book that's been divinely delivered to us. There are people in the world today, skeptics and those who uh, debate the Bible and criticize the Bible and, and uh, have disparaging remarks about the Bible because they do not believe it is the Word of God. And we as Christians need to know why we believe it is the Word of God. And so I want to begin with 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy rather, chapter 3. And we looked at this verse, uh, these, some of these verses before, but I want to uh, let you see this again. And I'd like to begin in verse 12. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. The Bible says, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now just take note of that verse. Everybody that wants to live a Christian life, everyone who wants to live a godly life, and it ought to be every Christian that desires that, you're going to be persecuted. There's going to be obstacles there's going to be people that will mock your faith. There will be people that will denounce you for being a Christian. There will be people that will say you're weak and you just believe in fables. And this book is just written by man and it has no authority on our lives. There are people that would say you're crazy if you're a Christian. You're just a weak person and you need a crutch to lean on. And, and so that's how their idea of where faith comes in. But notice that the Bible says... That if you desire to live a godly life, you're going to have persecution. And I might add to that, you're going to have trials. And you're going to have troubles. And you're going to have temptations. And the, this book gives us the answers. It gives us the strength to face those problems when they come our way. Verse 13, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Those are the naysayers about the word of God. Those are the ones who despise the Word of God. They are the ones who reject the Word of God. There are many of those people all around us. But notice in verse 14, and this is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to young Timothy, his son in the faith, who was a young pastor. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood, and Paul was the one who had taught him and discipled him. And so he had learned spiritual truths from, from the Apostle Paul. And he said, you need to continue in what you've learned. And then he reminds him that these things he learned began when he was a child at the foot of his mother and his grandmother. Verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So you see, our salvation depends on knowing the gospel 
of the Word of God, understanding the gospel message of the Bible. And I might add that your assurance of salvation depends on your understanding of the truth of the Word of God, trusting in the truth of the Bible. And your spiritual growth depends on your confidence, uh, depends on, on, your, on living by the principles taught in the Word of God. And the power to witness comes from your confidence that God's Word is true, that God's Word will bring conviction of sin in a person's heart. If we'll share the truth often, often enough, the Word will fall on fertile ground and there will be those who respond to the gospel. The gospel is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. And as we share the faith by the, our faith and the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting the Spirit to bring about the fruit, the results, we will see lives changed. We just need to keep sowing the seed. And so now we come to verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. And the Bible says, All Scripture is inspired by God. Notice the word all there, not just part of it. There are people who want to rip out parts of the Bible and say, well, that was for another day. That doesn't apply to me. Listen, the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God. That means it is God-breathed. As Colby taught us uh, last Sunday night as he's teaching a great series, doing a wonderful job teaching on how to understand the Bible, how to study the Bible, he said that the Bible is God speaking and man writing. This book was spoken, breathed into the spirit of, of man. Over 40 authors who penned the scriptures, but it was God speaking through those persons. They all said that the, what they wrote was not coming from human wisdom. They hadn't thought up those things. They were not so brilliant that they could know all these spiritual truths about God and about man and about what God's plan of redemption. So they were writing, but it was God speaking to them as they wrote. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, for training in righteousness. It teaches us the way to live and then it, it reproves us when we get off track and then it corrects us and shows us how to get back on track and then it teaches us how to keep on living for Jesus. This Bible is profitable. It is useful for doing that in our lives. Verse 17, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I just pray that you'd guide me this morning. Guide my mind Lord, as I communicate the truth of your word, and I pray for the hearers, Lord, that there would be fertile soil, that this word would fall on hearts that are open to receive truth today. And Lord, that you would change our lives, build our faith, uh, strengthen us where we're weak, help us, Father, where we need you. You know, there are many needs in this congregation today, and you know every need. You know every hurting heart. How I pray you'd minister life and minister healing and minister Help to every soul, Father, every person. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, what is the evidence for the divine inspiration of Scripture? You know, the Bible says it is. Well, somebody would say, well, that's the Bible saying that it's inspired. How do we know it's really inspired? How do we know this book we hold in our hands is inspired by God? Well, I'm going to give you several reasons today. First of all, I'm going to start with 
maybe not the most important, but one that is significant, and that is the scientific accuracy of Scripture. Now, the Bible is not a science book. Please understand that. It, it's not written to tell us how the heavens go. It's written to tell us how to go to heaven, right? That's how the Bible is written, so that we can know God and know how to be right and related to Him and one day live with Him eternally in a place called heaven. But when the Bible does speak about scientific matters, it does so with accuracy, contrary to what many people would tell you today. Let me give you an illustration way back from 1861. In 1861, the French Academy of Science wrote a pamphlet stating that there were 51 scientific facts that proved that the Bible is not true. Now, this was in 1861. They said there are 51 irrefutable scientific facts that the Bible is not true, that proves that the Bible is not true. Do you know that today there is not a reputable, reputable scientist in the world on this earth that believes that even one of those 51 so-called facts are true? You see, science changes, but aren't you glad God's Word doesn't change? God doesn't change. He's an unchanging God. Science is in continual flux. Anyone who knows science knows that. Things are changing always, and we're learning more and more. But the Bible does not change. Let me give you another illustration. In the, in the li there's a famous library in Paris, France, that has three and a half miles, and that's miles, of books on science. That's a big library. Three and a half miles are just books on science. And did you know that most of those books are obsolete today? They're obsolete because they were written in a time and more knowledge has been acquired. But I want you to know the Bible tells us several things that, that man didn't even find out and if they just read the Word of God would have known. First of all, the Bible, one of the most fundamental scientific facts is that the world, the earth, is suspended in space. We read that in Job 26, verse 7. If you'd like to turn with me, I'll show you this. We're going to look at three Old Testament passages related to the science area, okay? Job chapter 26, verse 7. The Bible says, speaking about God, he stretches out the north over the empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Did you know that there was a time in ancient, ancient Egypt and other, uh, other uh, people of the world that believed that the earth was supported by something like pillars? <clears throat> the, the Egyptians thought that there were these huge pillars that the earth sat on. The Greeks... Uh, thought that the world was carried on the back of a giant. Uh, the Hindus thought that the world rests on the backs of gigantic elephants. Now, I'd like to know what do those pillars rest on and what, do those, uh, what does that giant rest on and what do those elephants rest on? But there was a time in ancient history where people thought that the earth was supported by something. It had to rest upon something. But the Bible tells us and by the way, Job is the oldest, perhaps the oldest piece of literature known to man. How did Job 
know that the earth was suspended in space? How did he know that the world, God hung, hung the world on nothing? How did he know that? Well, it's called the divine inspiration of Scripture. God revealed to him something that he could not have known in his own wisdom, in his own knowledge. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. Well, there's another scientific fact, and that is that the earth is round and not flat. Turn to Isaiah 40, verse 22. (coughs) Now, some of you are saying, well, you know, we've known that for a long time. But back in 1492, when Columbus sailed to America, he was warned that he may sail off the edge of the earth. They thought that the earth was flat at that time. They didn't know that the world was round. Not everyone, at least. Some began to suspect it was. Maybe some had read Isaiah chapter 40, but look what it says in verse 22. The Bible says, It is He, and that's God, who sits above the vault of the earth. And if, uh, that word vault means circle. It's also a word that means sphere. It means circle or sphere or globe. It is God who sits above the globe of the earth the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It's the first part of that verse that I want to call your attention to. How did Isaiah know 750 years before Jesus Christ was born that the earth is round? Well, I'll tell you how. We're told in 2 Peter 1.21 that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, the Bible tells us that the earth is suspended in space. The, earth, the Bible tells us that the earth is round and, is, and not flat. Also, the, the Bible tells us that the stars are too numerous to be counted. Look in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 22. Jeremiah verse 33, <clears throat> chapter 33, verse 22. The Bible here, there was a time when people thought they had numbered the stars, and I'll give you some examples in just a moment. But in Jeremiah 33, 22, the Bible says, As the host of heaven cannot be counted, and that's a reference there to the stars, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. First part of that verse tells us that the Stars of heaven, the host of heaven, cannot be counted. They're too numerous. And the sand of the sea cannot be measured. You, can't, you cannot count the number of granules of sand on the beaches or underneath the sea. Man is unable to do that. Well, did you know that there was a time many years ago, 150 years before the time of Christ, that a man by the name of Hipparchus, he was an astronomer, and 150 B.C., one, one day, one night, on a clear night, and now he had been studying the stars for some time, and I don't know how many times he counted before he came to this count, but he, with the human eye, he counted that he saw 1,022 stars in the universe. And so uh, that number was considered scientifically accurate for 250 years. That's how many stars it was believed to be in the universe 150 years before Christ, 1,022. 
Well, 250 years later, another astronomer comes along by the name of Ptolemy. And he said, no, I counted more stars than that. And he said there were 1,056 stars, a few more than the previous estimate or count. And so science considered that to be the number of stars for a period of 1,300 years. They upgraded their, their science information. Well, then there came a, an astronomer by the name of Galileo. He invented the first crude telescope. And, it, and through that telescope, he, it was revealed to him that there were vastly more numbers of stars than what had previously been counted with the naked eye. In fact, as, as time has gone by and as more advanced technology has been developed as far as uh, uh, telescopes and the ability to measure and to see out into outer space, it has been now estimated that there are hundreds of billions of stars in the sky and really too numerous even to be counted. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Now, I just have given you a few examples here today, but I want you to know that the Bible is accurate when it comes to science. Sometimes man just needs to catch up with the Bible. Science needs to catch up with the Bible, and, and, and science is changing, but the Bible never, ever changes. Now, secondly, I want you to know today, not only is the Bible scientifically accurate, but also it is historically accurate. The Bible, by the way, is not primarily a, a book of history, although the first 17 books of the Old Testament are historical in nature. And we know that the uh, first four books uh, of the, of the uh, New Testament are historical in nature. And, and yet, we need to understand that the Bible is not just about history, it's about His story. It is about the story of God. It is God's self-revelation of Himself. It is God revealing His divine plan of redemption, God revealing His attributes, God revealing how man could be rightly related to Him. It is God revealing what the heart of man is like. But when we read the Bible and read, read about the places that are mentioned in the Bible as you read through the Bible, these are historical places. Now, sometimes the names have changed over the years. There's been some countries that have changed names even in my lifetime. But sometimes we know that something in history, this was an ancient name for it, and later it became called a different name. But when you read the countries and the provinces and the regions and the cities... They're verifiable. In fact, in the back of most Bibles, you find maps, and it's got these places on it. We know where these places are. That's not so when you read the Book of Mormon, by the way. There are numerous, vastly numerous names of locations and cities and places in there, and they are nowhere to be found. We do not know anything about those places today. But the Bible is historically accurate. And archaeological discoveries verify the historical accuracy of the Scripture. For instance, some historians have disputed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. They say, well, there was no language back then. There, there was no, uh, no uh, system of writing. In the time of Moses, they didn't, men didn't know how to write. And so they, were, they said there's no way he could have written the Pentateuch, which is the five, first five books of the Old Testament. Well, later... Archaeology 
uh, later proved that man did write letters. Clay tablets were discovered uh, through digs, and even a lady spading in her garden found these, these clay tablets, and they were actual letters written from Egypt, and they had been sent to someone in, in Palestine, which is the Holy Land of today. And by what was written in those letters, they could tell that this somehow had been transported, these letters, they had some kind of a mail system back then, whether it was by foot or however they got them there, but they were able to communicate back and forth, and they're actually clay tablets with letters on them from people in one part of the world to people in another part of the world, and they reciprocated in that communication. And that was a period of, uh, of centuries, if I remember right, several centuries before, uh, before, the, uh, before Moses' time. And so we see that the Bible is true. When the Bible tells us, we know that Moses wrote the first five books because Jesus quoted Moses and he named him by name and he quoted from the first five books of the Bible as well as other parts of the New Testament we'll see. And so therefore, the Bible is historically accurate and we need to understand that. Now there's a third reason that we know the Bible is true, not only because of science, not only because of historical accuracy, but also fulfilled prophecy. Fulfill prophecy. This is one of the uh, <clears throat> one of the greatest evidences of the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, I said last week there are three hundred and thirty three prophecies about Jesus Christ alone, and about a third of those, one hundred nine, were fulfilled at His first coming. The remaining two hundred and twenty four will be fulfilled at His second coming, and so we know that. These prophecies, for instance, let me just give you a few of these. And by the way, the critics say that the Bible's rigged. You know, they just rigged all this up. You had, you know, you got the Old Testament making all these prophecies and somebody just kind of wrote in the fulfillment of those prophecies. Uh, they say that they were, it was all arranged. Well, let me tell you some things that God arranged about the Bible. First of all, Jesus, who is God, Jesus arranged to be born in Bethlehem. In Micah, the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, the Bible says that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. This deliverer who would come would be born in Bethlehem. And that was fulfilled in the New Testament. Let me ask you this. Could you arrange where you were going to be born? None of us could. We could not arrange where we're going to be born. Jesus arranged hundreds of years before he was born, he arranged for it to be written in the Old Testament where that birth would take place. Also, Jesus arranged for Isaiah to record specific details about his own life, about Jesus' life. This was 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. You read about it in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, different things about the history of the life, that he'd be born of a virgin, that he would reign on the throne of David forever and ever. The government would be upon his shoulders, and that's going to be fulfilled. Uh, that government part is going to be, and it's going to and sit on the king of uh, the, the city on the throne of David forever. That will occur at his second coming. But these are facts about the life of Jesus. And then as Isaiah 53, where it describes his death, and we're going to look at that more closely in a moment. 
those things were prophesied 700 years before he, he foretold, the Bible foretold. Could you arrange for the history of your life to be told hundreds of years before you were born? None of us could, that's for sure. Well, as we think about uh, fulfilled prophecy, Jesus also arranged to be crucified on a cross, to be executed on a cross. Jesus arranged that to happen. It was prophesied not only in the New Testament, but, but much, much earlier in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, we have a description of the crucifixion the piercing of his hands and his feet. This would be that of the Messiah. The name Jesus is not used in Psalm 22, but it's, it's prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that they would cast lots or gamble for his garments, that he would be encompassed by evildoers. And there was two thieves, one on each side of him when he was crucified. It was prophesied that none of his bones would be broken. It was prophesied that the very, the very words he spoke were even were even uh, written in Psalm 22. And so these were all arranged by the Lord. In Psalm 22, that one chapter of Psalms, it contains 33 direct prophecies that were fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. And it was written, the Psalms were written a thousand years, a thousand years before Jesus Came. And by the way, the Jewish form of execution was not crucifixion. The Jewish form of execution was by stoning. No one even knew at that time that one day there would be a Roman Empire and the Romans would be, have authority over those who lived in Palestine, over those who lived in the Holy Land. And so it had to be that way. It was only as God caused the circumstances to be such that they were able to, that the, these scriptures were fulfilled and everything. Even the fact that he would be crucified between two thieves, as I mentioned already, that's stated also in Isaiah 53, verses 9 to 12, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's given in Zechariah 11, 12. I'm going through these fast, but I'm just wanting you to know that this is biblical, that the the life, the specific things about the crucifixion, all was described hundreds of years before it actually happened. Also, Jesus arranged to rise from the dead. He was the one who, who arranged that. And to be seen by over 500 people. There are those who say, well, they were just hallucinating. You get 500 people hallucinating at the same time, and they all hallucinate the same hallucination. They all see the same thing. Doesn't make sense, does it? Do men die for a lie? No. The apostles were martyred for their faith and other Christians were persecuted. Stephen was stoned for his faith. You don't die for a lie. And you might live for a lie, but you don't die for a lie. And by the way, many of the prophecies, most of the prophecies that were fulfilled were fulfilled by the enemies of Jesus and not his friends. So... We see that the fulfillment of prophecy is a third reason that we know that the Bible is inspired by God. Let me give you a few more real quick. The testimony of Scripture is another evidence of the, of the inspiration of Scripture. The Bible always says God, it was God who spoke 
to Joshua and David and Moses and the prophets. The Bible is full of terms like, phrases like, Thus saith the Lord, the Lord has spoken, the Lord said, the Lord spoke. It, it's, it's, the, it's always the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's not man writing. God is speaking and man is doing the writing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we see that when Paul wrote, he made it very clear that it was not his own wisdom that he was, that he was uh, writing and his information was not coming from Seth. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. <clears throat> the Bible says, Paul's writing here, he says, for, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, these true spiritual truths. God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of of God. He's saying man cannot know the thoughts of God, the Spirit of God. Man can't know that. God had to reveal that. Verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Bible says, and I'll just, I'll just read it for you, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The scripture testifies itself that it is God's word. It's not man's ideas. And then there's the testimony of Jesus. Jesus quoted, he believed the Old Testament was the word of God. He quoted Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Psalms and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah. He made references to people in the Bible such as Moses and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Jonah Jesus believed the scriptures to be the word of God. And he said that not one jot or tittle would pass away until all had been accomplished. Not every, every I would be dotted and every T would be crossed and not one letter of every, any word would pass away until all that had been written had been fulfilled. And then there's the unity of the Bible and I talked about that last week. Written over a period of 1,500 years, six, 15 to 1,600 years by approximately 40 different people who penned the scripture. They didn't know that what they were writing was going to be a part of a book that one day would be called the Bible. They didn't understand that. And so uh, they were writing as God spoke and they wrote it down. And then it has a constant theme throughout the Bible. There's a scarlet letter all the way from Genesis to Revelation. You can trace uh, the Christ and the blood of Christ and the, the, the sacrificial uh, death of Christ all the way through the Bible. One central figure, one person who is the main person, and that is Jesus himself, the Son of God. People that wrote the scriptures were from all different walks of life, all different uh, vocations. They were kings, there were peasants, there were fishermen, there were people, uh, tax collectors, you name it, people from all walks of life. And yet it all 
melts and, and, and weaves into one common book. It's unified, not one part contradicts the other. So the unity of the Bible tells us that it is of God. Only God could orchestrate that. Well, let me wrap up a few things here. First of all, I've been studying the Bible seriously since 1977. I'm talking about serious study of the scriptures. I've not found any hidden faults. I've only found hidden treasures in the word of God. I have found affirmations that the word of God is true. The Bible has incredible power to lead us to, to, uh, to salvation, to rescue the perishing, to care for the dying, to snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. The Bible has the power to do that. It has the power to convict the souls, the minds of men. It, it has the power to stir our conscience, uh, to convert our souls. The Bible is sweet to the saint. The Bible is a treasure. The Bible brings peace to our hearts. It brings spiritual knowledge, a wealth of spiritual knowledge. It is sufficient for the sufferer. It brings comfort. It brings strength. It brings encouragement to our hearts and lives. It satisfies the scholar. The Word of God is, is so deep that scholars can swim and never touch the bottom, someone said. And yet it is so precious that a child can come and get a drink without fear of drowning. This Word of God is a unique book. It is unlike any other book. You can trust the Word of God. Read it, believe it, live it, and I'll add the fourth one, love it. Love the Word of God. Man has three problems, sin, suffering, and death. All three of those problems are answered in the Word of God. If you think about it, everything in life relates to one of those three things, sin, suffering, and death. And the Bible has the truth. It, has, it is our guide. We are to live this book and love this book. It leads us to salvation. Perhaps there's someone here today that needs to come to Christ to put your faith and trust in Him. You're a sinner. We all are sinners. We're born sinners. We choose to be sinners. You need to be saved from your sin, forgiven of your sin. Have a right relationship with God. That comes as you believe on the Lord Jesus that He died for your sins and receive Him into your life. There are those who need to make things right in their life with their Lord today. Where you sit in the pew or here at the altar or to intercede for somebody else that's hurting to be a prayer warrior for them, or maybe today to just recommit yourself to be a diligent student of Scripture and to do exactly what we have said. Let this book guide and shape your life. Maybe there are those who need a church home and you would come, God's Spirit leading you to be a part of our church here at Alberta. Uh, you do as God leads in your life today. Father, thank you for the Word, and I pray, God, that this truth would certainly uh, pierce to the very inner core of our being. And I pray that we would love your word, even as the psalmist did. And Lord, that we would live your word. And I pray, God, that we would let your word change our lives. The transforming power of the word is probably even the greatest evidence, Father, that the word, your word is, is the word of God because it brings life change to hearts. And we thank you, Father, for the change you brought in our hearts and lives. We pray for those who need Christ to have courage and boldness to walk forward and say, Pastor, I want to come and place my faith in Jesus. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.